beef, it's what's for dinner. Remember that slogan way back when, maybe the 80s or so? Well, now it's more like beef, killing the environment. Get rid of it. That seems to be the common message now. So why the change? Well, the change is the focus on climate change, the focus on how cattle emit methane. And so the more cattle there are, the more methane. But is it that simple? Well, no, it's much more complicated than that. Cattle play an important role in the environment. They can really help the land and help the environment. But how do we put that in perspective and fit that into this overall climate issue and climate discussion? Plus, there's sort of this negative connotation on meat and saturated fat and beef as being unhealthy and therefore worth getting rid of. But that message has its own problems and is inaccurate when it comes to you know, well-formulated diets that in which beef and animal products can serve a role for um, nutrient density, uh, for providing pr high-quality protein and nutrition. So I think we need to sort of change the discussion. So today I want to um, talk to a couple experts in this field. One, an expert on nutrient deficiencies and nutrient quality um, so we can hear more about the role that, that meat can play. And the other, an expert in land management, someone who's out there every day managing the land, seeing the changes that can happen with a well-managed pasture and how that can actually help with the environment and what we can see to move forward in the future with this. So this discussion from a little different perspective um, of the environmental equation that is not just uh, cattle emit methane, therefore get rid of them, but how can we change our thought process about the potential benefits and how can we utilize that for good rather than seeing it as evil as it's, as it's um, commonly presented in, in mainstream media and social media. Well, Ty Beal, thanks for joining us once again on the Diet Doctor podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Brett. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I mean, I really enjoyed our last discussion, so it made sense to have you back for another discussion about the intersection of food, health, climate, sustainability, how it all comes together. And so when we're talking about food specifically, when we're talking about animal source foods or even more specifically beef, we can talk about its role for health. We can talk about its role for you know, enjoying your meals. Um, we can talk about its role for nutrients and we can talk about its role for the climate. So I want to start with the latter because that seems to be getting a lot of the oxygen in the room lately and a lot of the attention is the role for climate. But when you talk about eating for climate, it's challenging. And I know you've got a lot of perspective on this. So I want to start, kick off the discussion by talking about the study that you tweeted about. And by the way, if somebody listening doesn't follow Ty on Twitter, I highly recommend you do. But you tweeted about a study showing that beef and lamb were three times worse for the environment than basically any other foods, with the best foods for the environment having the least uh, greenhouse gas impact were like sports drinks and colas and chips and onion rings and rice and juice. And So give us your perspective on this study and sort of how you put it into perspective of this concept of eating for a healthier climate. Sure. So thanks for giving me the opportunity um, to share. Uh, first, I'd just like to say I, I'm um, friends with one of the co-authors on the study. I have um, She's a good colleague of mine, and so I don't have anything bad to say about the authors, but I do think the study, which kind of builds on a, a previous study from Pora Nemechek in Science in 2018 and adds data from a, a recent study in Nature, really um, has some important limitations. It's really impressive how it brings together these, these data, but 
one of the one of the things when I first look at the study, there's a figure that shows the environmental impact, which is really supposed to consider more than just climate. It's it's incorporating things like greenhouse gas emissions, water, land use, eutrophication. And you can see on the right side, you see beef and lamb, which is sort of off the chart, kind of dwarfs all of the other impacts. And uh, so when you when you get into it, you can see things like you mentioned the the soft drinks, the sports drinks, and actually the the finding of the study is that the impact of beef and lamb is 174 times higher than soft drinks, 174 times. So it's not like a small difference. It's not so that yeah. makes me that makes me question the findings because from what I know about uh, beef and lamb, ruminants in general have an actually really unique role to play in sustainable food systems. There's a lot of downsides. There's a lot of um, risk to the environment for sure, but there's also a lot of positives. And so I think that sort of uh, acknowledgement of some of the positives was um, not really addressed or mentioned in the study. Yeah. So when it comes to just pure greenhouse gas emissions, is there any argument that basically beef, cattle, they are the the largest greenhouse gas emitters of all you know animal source foods and all even plant based foods in agriculture. I would say based on the current um, current way of communicating and, and um, analyzing greenhouse gas emissions, they generally do show up as the largest uh, impact. Now, there's, there's a bunch of caveats here. Uh, we don't really quantify greenhouse gas emissions. Um, in necessarily the best way, I think it's um, debatable. But there's there are ways um, to consider the the emissions that are already um, kind of there in a shorter term natural cycle of ruminants. Which, by the way, ruminants exist in natural ecosystems and especially grasslands, and so they produce methane, but it's incorporated back into the soil in this natural cycle. So there are different ways to look at it, but the the current way of looking at it generally does show that beef and lamb or ruminants more broadly have the highest uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, however, there's a, there, there are other important things to consider. So uh, greenhouse gas emissions are one of many different environmental indicators. Um, the, there's water use, land use, um, there is circularity, there is soil health, there is all sorts of aspects of en- environmental impact. And I think it's really important to think of this holistically. Now, if you're talking just about emissions, the other factor is really what's the baseline metric being used? Is it kilograms? Is it calories? Is it protein? And more recently, I mean, there's some limitations with those, right? Because it doesn't really consider the nutritional value of a food. So when you think about it's called a nutritional functional unit or a functional unit of the life cycle analysis that uh, that assesses the impact, it really depends on what the metric is on the nutritional side to quantify it that has an impact on that. So if you look at the the micronutrient value, especially in certain micronutrients that are often lacking, like iron and zinc, um, you know, beef and lamb are actually pretty dense sources of those nutrients in in bioavailable form. So it does shift the story a little bit. They actually perform a little bit better when you consider that. But but in general, yes, greenhouse gas emissions are still showing as as pretty high based on um, standard practices. I think that's a great point in, in the units that you're using, because it I don't mean it's my bias coming through, but it really kind of drives me a little crazy when I see it per calorie because calories aren't what we're missing. Calories not what we're lacking, at least here in the United States and in most high income countries. We're not missing calories. We're missing nutrients and we're missing protein. Um, and so that's I think a very important point. Now, even when you equate it per gram of protein, it's still 
can have a hot, relatively high greenhouse gas emissions, but much lower than if you consider it per calorie. Now, is there a way where you can see that being offset by other other benefits, and you've alluded to them, whether it's you know improving the soil quality, um, and although they may use water, they can also help the soil retain water and helping biodiversification. Is there? Do you think that that can offset the um, climate impact of increased greenhouse gas emissions? I definitely think there's a there's there's a great potential to offset a big portion of those emissions. The other consideration is that on, on natural grasslands, as I mentioned, you're going to have a baseline level of methane emissions and other emissions. I think it's really important to consider what that is. Um, and so if you're going to try to rewild some place where ruminants are grazed, for example, you're going to have, it's not just going to be zero emissions. There's going to be an, an impact from, from the ruminants on that land. And there's a lot of trade-offs with um, you know, trying to not graze grasslands because the, you know, natural grassland can, if there's no ruminants on it, you don't have the proper ecosystem set up with a, you know, a predator species that's um, controlling and moving around these ruminants, then you have um, woody encroachment. You can have actually reductions in biodiversity in certain contexts if you let that land just, just sort of go uh, to where it naturally where it would fall without any any efforts. Now, I think there's really positive ways to rewild and that should be considered. Uh, but it's, a, it's, it's important to think about that. You know, when you think about land use, I'll just go through a few of the, I think, some of the key aspects of sustainability and the environmental side that I think are important to consider. So land use is a big, um, big factor in sustainability. About two thirds of grasslands currently used for livestock are really unsuitable for crop production. So otherwise, they couldn't be used for food production for the most part. That's a, that's a large area of land. Now they could, you know, you can argue that those lands could be rewilded and be natural ecosystems. But again, there's going to be there's going to be some baseline of emissions that you have to consider there. There's also a lot of issues around the politics of land use, and it's not just like if you take all the ruminants off the land, that's going to immediately go to, you know, natural ecosystems. It most of it probably won't in reality. Um, so you know, ruminants are uniquely placed to convert this these um, grasses the crop byproducts, residues that are really inedible to humans um, into nutrient-dense meat and milk. And this is where you get into like the discussion around circularity is, well, if you don't have ruminants in a, in a natural you know, agroecosystem, you're not really making optimal use of all of um, potential resources, um, things like manure that's generated. You're not recycling in the most efficient ways the inedible portions of crops. And I know there can be arguments to say you can just compost that, but I think really when you look at um, efficient ways to make use of that, I think uh, using ruminants is actually a really productive pr productive way to do that. Um, as you mentioned, soil health is a big issue with um, grazing. And, and if, if ruminants uh, are not grazed properly on the land, that can be a negative factor. But in general, when you, when you um, graze appropriately, it really can improve soil health. Um, water use is another factor. And uh, beef and lamb use a lot of water. But I think what, what's important to understand is that most of that water is actually from rain-fed conditions. So it's not being taken out of, um, you know, it's not being irrigated, taken out of groundwater and surface water. It's really about 90, 94% of the um, livestock water use is from rainwater. Yeah. So why don't we hear that very much? We just hear how, how their big water sinks and takes so much water, but we don't hear that argument quite as much. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Um, I think some people who communicate on this probably don't understand it. Maybe others who do um, are trying to make a point saying that they use a lot of water overall, which is true. Yeah. Um, 
So, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine on that. Okay. But <laughs> yeah, the other, you know, the other aspects are like biodiversity. When you think about what would happen in a crop production system if you're just if you're just doing like a monoculture, even if you're trying to do a, a diverse um, polyculture um, that's just producing crops, you're kind of missing out on, on biodiversity if you exclude livestock and particularly the ruminants from that system. There's a bunch of function, um, important functions that they play. So I think when you look at biodiversity, um, you can actually produce um, quite a bit, like quite high levels of biodiversity um, with the production of ruminants if you produce it in the right way. Um, and so I think those are like, those are important considerations. Again, looking, trying to look holistically. Um, and when we talk about, you know, circularity, we're really talking about how do you optimize the bioeconomy? How do you increase efficiency, maximize external, uh, you minimize external inputs, but um, also try to make use of waste and, and regenerate the ecosystem. So, you know, studies actually show when you look at the potential for cir circular systems, you can produce up to about 23 grams of edible protein per person per day. You know, if you're making use of all of the food waste that could be recycled. And so that's, I think, uh, it's, we're not there. So you think about the potential, like we're not producing uh, livestock, we're not producing all of our food in the most optimal way. So I think there's, there's quite a bit of ground to be, to be made up there. And the last thing I would say on this, on the circularity um, concept is really that, uh, and, and is not always mentioned, is that ruminants only take um, about 5% of the global feed is um, in competition with human food. So this is something like grains or soybean meal that would be edible to humans. The, the vast majority of these uh, of the feed is is actually inedible to humans. So it's not as though we can just, um, or we would want to just get rid of livestock entirely and produce a bunch of uh grain and soybeans, there's lots of byproducts, there's grasses that are um, edible and that are not necessarily being made use of. And so I think that's an important um, consideration as well. Yes, you brought up a lot, of, a lot of really good points there. So there is this argument that basically makes the assumption that there is no benefit to cattle, that we can get rid of them and we can get our protein elsewhere and it'll be better for the environment. So we should just let all, those, all that land rewild. But what is that? What is that assumption missing in terms of if we just got rid of all the cattle from a nutrition standpoint? Or um, you sort of mentioned a lot of the environmental aspects of it. So I guess the the focus would be what is it missing from the nutrition standpoint? Yeah, well, it's certainly missing. I think we're we're losing a key set of nutrients that are often lacking in the diet. So iron and zinc being common inadequacies in the diet. Um, you know, animal source foods and especially um, ruminant meat are some of the top sources of bioavailable iron and zinc. So if you're going to replace that, you really have to be considerate of the impact on the nutrient adequacy side of things. There are certainly a lot of other things with, um, with livelihoods and um, economic impact about that, you know, the implications of that transition, as well as the reality, as I mentioned before, land that is, um, you know, agricultural land, it's not just going to be converted to natural ecosystems. I think it would be great if we could do more of that for sure. But I think the, the reality is that land is going to be used for other purposes. It may be developed and there may be, you know, there may be other negative consequences to that. So I think you really have to think about the, the reality of what's going to happen to that land. And right. as I mentioned, you can, I think this is, this is where it's controversial, but from my perspective, you really can emulate natural ecosystems to some extent 
with livestock and ruminants. And so the more that we can do that, I think it, we can't do that at every scale. We can't just have as much meat as we want. I don't think, I think you have to moderate for environmental reasons. Um, there's also arguments on the health side for that, but certainly I don't think the argument is that removing it's going to be the best thing. I think you think about nutrition and environment, you can't have fully circular agroecosystems without animals. You just yeah. can't do it. I don't think you can make use of everything that they provide. Yeah. When you mentioned about what, what that land is going to be used for, I, I just can't help but think about pave paradise and put up a parking lot, which is uh, likely what will happen in many cases. Unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you mentioned um, iron and zinc, which really then sort of ties in very well to the paper that you've recently published um, showing basically nutrient deficiencies in estimated 372 million um, preschool-age kids and 1.2 billion women having at least one nutrient deficiency, and not just in poor-income countries, but also in higher-income countries. So I mean, those numbers are sort of like staggering and mind-boggling. Uh, was that sort of surprising to you when you saw nutrient deficiencies of at least one important nutrient on that level? I was expecting that, but I was still surprised to see it. Um, I think I was especially surprised to see the high prevalence in high-income countries. Um, you know, in in the U.S. and the U.K., about you know a third of women in the U.S. and half of women in the U.K. have at least one deficiency. That's really... Uh, that's really prevalent and it doesn't get much attention. I think it's easy to dismiss and say, we don't have issues of undernutrition. Um, it's not the big thing to concern. You know, we have to worry about obesity and non-communicable diseases, but I think that would be a mistake to ignore um, because I do think it has, um, I do think it has a meaningful health impact and I don't think we know exactly what that is. Um, but, but this, hopefully this study will help bring awareness that there are issues with inadequacy and deficiencies and we should pay attention to them. Yeah. I mean, the, the study I think was, was very well done and very well written, but the one sort of connection that I think a lot of people might have trouble with is, okay, so you're a little low on zinc. What is the real clinical impact of that? Like we know if it's iron, you can have anemia, um, folate, especially for, um, for, um, fertile women who are looking to get pregnant is important. But, you know, if you're a little low on zinc, is there a real clinical outcome that happens from that? Um, so how do you sort of tie it back to the clinical implication? You're absolutely right. We are not looking at necessarily clinical symptoms of a, of a disease. Um, however, the thresholds for what we kind of define as deficiency really were determined in conjunction with an advisory panel of experts that, you know, include doctors and specialists in the health impacts of deficiencies in these nutrients. So every deficiency in a nutrient is on a continuum from least less severe to more severe, depending on the, the level of that deficiency. Where you say there's a health impact or a significant health impact, I think that's debatable. But what we attempted to do is try to use cutoffs that were most, most um, broadly accepted in the field to say this is actually a meaningful health risk. So health risks, you mentioned for iron, you know, there's anemia and, you know, folate, there's risk of um, neural tube defects in the fetus. There are a lot of impacts of deficiencies in, in iron, vitamin A, zinc, B12, vitamin D, iodine. So these include um, increased susceptibility to infections, uh, birth defects, blindness, reduced growth, cognitive impairment, decreased work pro productivity, and in severe cases, um, death. And so 
it's not to say that every person who has a deficiency, you know, be, you know, they're, they don't have enough circulating, uh, you know, mineral in their blood doesn't mean that they're having all of these consequences, but it does mean they're at increased risk for them. And it's very likely that there is some health consequence. They're not optimally functioning. Yeah. And animal source foods, as you've pointed out, is, is the most efficient way to, um, to address many, if not all, most of those deficiencies. And now this also gets into the argument of, you know, high income countries versus low income countries when it comes to animal source foods, that we need more of it in low income countries because that's where the deficiencies are highest for protein and for nutrients, but less so for the high income countries. Or at least that's sort of one of the narratives. Do you agree with that narrative or do you think it, it it's not quite accurate? To some extent. So it is true. Deficiencies um, and other forms of uh, malnutrition, undernutrition in particular, are very high in uh, low and middle income countries. In fact, our study actually found that nine in 10 women, um, 15 to 49, have at least one micronutrient deficiency in Cote d'Ivoire, Cameroon, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and India. Wow. And, you know, we only had data on, on you know, a few dozen countries, so we didn't look at all countries. And that's it's pretty staggering to see that prevalence. So certainly the the burden of micronutrient deficiencies is much higher in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, those two regions in particular. And I think it's important to highlight the, the, um, there are multiple insults to children, to women, pregnant women, lactating women during um, critical periods of you know, growth and development. And these insults are like you know, unclean water um, and unsanitized food, um, so unsafe food, other, other insults that can really impact your nutritional status if you're getting sick all the time. And so it's, it's kind of synergistic. I think a deficiency in many nutrients or one nutrient in those contexts are actually much more concerning um, than they are in high income countries. So of course, um, animal source food intake is much lower in South Asia and sub-Saharan Africa than it is in most high income countries. And so certainly if you're going to approach how do we improve diets and address these nutritional issues in, in high income countries versus low-income countries, you're going to have a much different approach. Um, so I would, I would, you know, strongly believe that animal source foods can actually be increased in many of these contexts to improve nutrition uh, in high-income countries. I don't think that that's usually necessary. I think they're, um, for the most part, they're in a relatively healthy range. I think there are certain food groups within that that are sort of unhealthy. So, you know, processed meat consumption can be too high in the U.S. and other countries. Right. Um, but in general... I mean, healthy diets are healthy diets. So from my perspective, if you can shift populations to consuming more diverse foods, less ultra-processed foods, and nutrient-dense foods, that's going to be a win, I think, on in all populations. And it's going to be helpful for not only nutrient deficiencies, but also your risk of non-communicable diseases. Just a blanket statement then, would you say animal source foods can play an important role in a healthy dietary matrix in high-income countries? And should they? Absolutely. Um, I think they can and they should. Um, that doesn't mean that every every individual in the population needs to consume them. Certainly, if you do well on a you know plant exclusive diet and you have no interest in uh, animal source foods and you can meet all of your uh, nutrient requirements and be healthy, that's great. Um, but I think you know at a population level, I would really like to see at least a moderate amount of animal source foods because the nutrients found in animal source foods compared to 
plant-based foods are really uh, complementary. So you, you're going to have higher, you know, potassium, folate, vitamin E, et cetera, magnesium in, in plant source foods. Whereas in, in animal source foods, you're going to get B12, you're going to get iron, you're going to get zinc, you're going to get calcium. So I think it's really important to not shift too far in either direction because you really increase the risk of deficiencies. Yeah. So we've talked about micronutrient deficiencies. So what about protein deficiency? And and here, I think it can be defined sort of different ways, either sort of a clinical protein deficiency or an optimal protein deficiency, which are going to be two different levels. And the second one, a little bit harder to define. But in your research of micronutrients, have you also looked at protein and how that varies? You know, we don't, we haven't looked at protein in this study. Um, I'm sort of of the opinion that there is sort of a minimum required amount and potentially optimal amounts. I'm not an expert, but I, I generally go by about 1.6, you know, grams per kilogram as, as more optimal for optimizing performance. If you're, you know, you're an athlete, you're trying to um, improve body composition or lose weight. But again, I don't think that that needs to be the target for most people necessarily. Um, and certainly not from a sustainability standpoint, I don't think we have to think like that. I think the minimum requirement is, um, much more obtainable, but um, I think it's just important to realize that there actually are populations who aren't getting enough protein and not the right um, combination of amino acids. So in, Mm -hmm. especially in low income countries with low animal source foods, you actually do see low circulating amino acids. um, And that's causing probably uh, impacts on growth and development of children. And it doesn't mean that you have to always eat lots of animal source foods to get those met, but you really have to have a diverse diet. You want to make sure you combine, you know, plant source foods that have those complementary amino acid profiles um, together, at least in the same day. All right, well, we've explored a lot of a lot of different topics. I want to go back to a couple specific topics. Um, one is again going back to land use, and there's this this whole concern about deforestation, which is a big deal. Of, of course, um, for the climate. A lot of the concern is some of the deforestation is used to grow crops that then go to ruminants, but yet human edible feed is a small percentage of what they're eating. So, but what are your thoughts about the the role of deforestation, the risks of it, and if it's if there's a way to minimize it while still maintaining healthy ruminant herds um, that imp- provide benefit to uh, the environment? I would start off by saying deforestation is a huge concern and it's a huge concern historically. I think we've, as a society, made some really, uh, really bad decisions in terms of um, the impact to the environment that are, you know, in many cases are permanent, that can't really be uh, fully uh, remedied. So that's unfortunate. And um, livestock certainly play a big role in this. You think about deforestation in the Amazon and other places with high biodiversity, it's often the case that those um, forests are cleared and, you know, they're cleared for, for many reasons, but also including crop production and, and feed production for ruminants. And they're also grazed by ruminants. I think it's also important to caveat the statement that I had said about the, you know, ruminants consuming about 95% of their diets from inedible, um, you know, human inedible food. That is definitely true, but they also consume a lot of food overall. So they're they are consuming a lot of feed crops, and especially in to, in the you know the conventional system that we produce animal source foods in livestock um, ruminants, you actually do they they consume a lot of um, feed from crop production, and often crop production that was could have been cleared for you know 
weird old growth forest or crop production that is using monocultures and intensive you know, industrial uh, inputs that are not always the best option. So I do think we have a lot of work to do and and we cannot let um, livestock off the hook by any means when we think about land use. They're a huge contributor. Um, But with that said, again, there are ways to make use of natural grasslands. So I'm not talking about grazing ruminants in tropical forest that's not that's not necessarily the best use of use of land right. uh, however if, if the natural ecosystem is a grassland and there are um you know ways to, there actually are ways to produce that um meat and milk products in really sustainable ways i think that that should be considered and i don't think we need to completely eliminate i think we need to do it in the right way right so it brings up the the next point then about um, we, we, we talk about cattle so frequently as if it's one thing, one system, one way of raising them, but clearly it's not. And it's not even two ways, right? Cause then you could say, okay, well it's on grassland or it's in the, the CAFOs industrial production. And even that's a simplification, but starting with that simplification, is it so clear as to say, we just have to get rid of the industrial CAFO type of, uh, of production and only focus on the grazing or would you even throw some more nuances in there? I would think that's a, uh generally true statement if you want to be sort of just make a statement that's generalizable but i do think there are exceptions and the exceptions come down to land use so in general i would like to see production shift to basically be in alignment with the local ecosystem so if you're in a natural grassland you can potentially produce a fair amount of you know ruminants on that land if you're if you don't have natural grasslands don't try to do that. Like, don't don't clear the land. Like, if you don't have natural grasslands, it's probably a tropical area. You may have a lot of access to water, and you could pursue more uh, aquatic foods for for food for food production. So, I think it really depends on the context. The other consideration is that if you want to produce some, uh, let's say, beef or or other ruminant meat, in a context where you have high biodiversity, like Brazil or something. It may be the case that there are some contexts where an intensive system that uses a smaller amount of land actually makes sense. So I'm not going to like advocate for that everywhere by any means, but I just want to want at least leave room for that potential consideration because I think that's can be overlooked by a sort of very um, black and white view on this. So, so if we're going to be to shift towards more appropriate use of land, more appropriate use of where cattle are raised. It does sound like the overall herd is going to need to be decreased um, in order to accommodate for that. Do you think that's the case, or do you think there is a path to ramping up to maintain the same amount of cattle we have, or clear, or, or close to the same amount, with a, a much smaller environmental impact while still providing? high-quality, bioavailable protein for the whole world? Well, this is, uh, I think, a a complicated question. Um, So I think, in general, if you're looking globally, um, there's a very big range of how much uh, livestock are produced in different contexts. Oftentimes, the the production can be really efficient in in certain high-income contexts with with access to technology or, or certain approaches. And so I wouldn't necessarily advocate for just significantly reducing consumption where it's relatively high. There can be, you know, there can be sustainable ways to export and whatnot. But I would say in general, from a sustainability point of view, it would probably be better to reduce uh, overall meat 
um, consumption in high income countries to some extent and increase it in uh, low and middle income countries where consumption is low. How to do that? I think there's a lot of different ways to think about it. It could be through uh, increased production in, in certain contexts in those countries. Um, again, it's really, I think I would like to see the production be more wherever these foods are produced, whatever beef is produced, I'd like to see it produced in ways that are aligned with the local ecosystem so that we're not fighting against that and not creating more harmful impacts. Um, from a health side, I think there's a wide range of animal source foods that people can be healthy on, but certainly there's, there's probably a U-shaped curve. And um, in many contexts, people need a lot more plant source foods, you know, minimally processed pulses, nuts and seeds, fruits and vegetables. So I think it's important if you care about the environment to think about how, how diet impacts that. And I think there is a, a strong case that we need to moderate uh, animal source foods for the environment in high consuming contexts. Yeah. You know, I had a, a follow-up question to sort of tie it all together, but I guess it's it's what we've been discussing the whole time. So let's see if we can come to a, a, a succinct summary, which may or may not be the case. But so is there a solution that maintains beef and cattle as an effective and enjoyable bioavailable protein source that minimizes the negative climate impact and maximizes the potential beneficial climate impact? I guess that's what we've been talking yeah. about the whole time. Yeah, I think the answer from my perspective is yes. And I think that we can produce, um, you know, a moderate amount of uh, livestock and ruminants in particular um, in a sustainable way. If we really focus on circular um, agroecosystems, minimizing waste loss, trying to be productive and efficient, make use of the land in, in um, I think, smart ways where we are working with natural ecosystems instead of against them. And be willing to um, try to reduce intake um, in high consuming contexts um, if necessary. And also at the same time, be willing to increase um, and promote animal source foods in low consuming contexts. And uh, I think if we do that, then we're, we're, we're trying to find the right balance between human health and uh, environmental sustainability, which I think ultimately is long term important for humans and our resilience. Yeah. And, and while that's probably the perfect way to end it, I'm not going to let you off the hook yet because there's another question that, that I actually didn't ask because I, I've covered it with, with different people on the podcast, but I really want to get your perspective on it as well. And that's that's the concept of you know the, the herd size, the total number of ruminants hasn't changed all that much. What has changed over the you know decades and centuries is the human impact on, on climate change and the CO2 production and you know, the power plants and the energy use and, and that really, if you look at it, ruminants are, are just a small percentage of all that, but yet beef and ruminants get sort of the majority of the attention, presumably because it's easier to change than changing all the other things. But how do you think about just the role of, of animal agriculture, ruminant agriculture in general, in the bigger picture of climate change, and if it's even the right approach to be discussing it rather than some of the other contributors? I think I've seen um, examples on either sides of this that I don't really agree with, and that's sort of the extreme views of we need to reduce, um, really, we need to reduce or eliminate ruminants to be sustainable. That's the only way. I don't agree with that. I think that's been clear, but also the other side of, you know, there's, we had 50 million bison in the, you know, the great plains of North America. Um, and so we should be able to maintain that much. Um, I think that that argument is not fully soundproof either, because 
in reality, we don't live in a world that is just totally unaffected by human impact. We live in a world that has been greatly affected by that. And we're not anywhere close to just eliminating human. We don't want to, obviously. We're not going to eliminate humans and just go back to a completely natural, whatever we call a natural ecosystem. So I don't think it's fair to say just because we had this many ruminants, we should be able to always produce that many in a sustainable way. We have a lot of land use issues that, that are not the same. We don't really want, I wouldn't necessarily want all grasslands to just be grazing ruminants. Like there's, there's some beauty in it and certainly some huge ecological importance of preserving and even rewilding and restoring grassland ecosystems to, um, you know, for ecotourism, all sorts of reasons, but it doesn't have to be black and white like that. There can be ways to graze, um, livestock and help, uh, restore the land and actually restore the biodiversity. You know, the world wildlife fund for nature in the U S is doing this in the, in the great plains and the prairies are actually working with ranchers to try to conserve ecosystems. And so I think it doesn't have to be black and white. Um, but certainly, we can't just eat or produce as much beef as we want. I don't think that's true. I think we need to be considerate of the complexity of our, you know, land use globally. And there's a there's a path sort of in the middle. There's this moderate path of let's produce some, let's enjoy it, let's do it in the best way we can. It's going to contribute to food and nutrition security, but let's not go overboard. We need to recognize that it plays a role. That doesn't mean the other sectors go, get off the hook. I think, as you yeah. mentioned, yes. beef is not the number one contributor to climate change. I don't, I don't think that's true, that no data shows that. Um, but we can't address climate change by just focusing on one sector. We can't address it just by focusing on one subcomponent of a sector. So we need to really, in the agricultural world and food systems, we need to take responsibility for what that is in an in a ethical and sustainable way. Um, and I think in messaging, we should certainly not get let fossil fuels and energy industry off the hook. We need to really um, focus on that because that's a huge, huge contributor. Very good. Well, a as I expected, a, a voice of reason, um, a, a very balanced and thoughtful uh, voice on this topic. So thank you so much for taking the time to go over all these very interesting and important uh, questions with us today. And any last words or any you know way you want to direct people to find more about you? Oh, well, no, just thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. I think this discussion can be polarizing, but it doesn't have to be. Um, I hope that whatever disagreements are out there, that we can work towards more friendly, respectful discussions, because otherwise I think it's just doing a disservice and we're not really making any way forward. So if you can do one thing, try to be kind when you communicate your disagreements with somebody on social media, through scientific articles or whatever. Perfect. Thank you. Next, we're going to hear from Arielle Greenwood. Now, Arielle is a land manager and a cattle manager. That's what she does. She's out on uh, the pasture, on the rangeland with the cattle. But as you'll hear, she's not just taking care of cattle. She's taking care of the land. And I think that's what's an important to hear from people who are out there doing it because they'll have a different perspective um, from city folk, so to speak. Now, so Arielle, you can find her at um, grassnomads.com or at Greenwood AE on Twitter. She's the co-owner of Grass Nomads, which is a land and livestock management company. She's a board member on Holistic Management International, and she splits her time between Montana and New Mexico 
um, on on different ranges. So I think it's going to be important to get her perspective. She's she's uh, she gives a lot of thought to these topics and gives very um, detailed and nuanced answers, which I think is important. And, and we talk about the importance of that. So so let's hear from Ariel. Ariel Greenwood, thanks so much for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast today. Thanks for having me, Brett. I'm really excited to to be able to talk to you about someone who is on the land all day working with the land, working with the cattle to really get your perspective on this. But first, I want to hear about what got you into this job because it depends how you look at it, right? You could say, oh my goodness, you're spending 10 plus hours in 90 to 100 degree heat on dusty terrain, chasing around a bunch of cows. Like who would want to do that? Or you could say you're out in the beautiful open spaces under the blue skies. You're not confined by an office. You're really helping improve the environment and take care of animals. Sounds beautiful. So it depends on your perspective. But I'm curious how you got into this to begin with. Sure. Thanks for asking. Well, yeah, I think you characterize it fairly well. And and I feel both those ways in the course of any given day sometimes. Um, for me, I, I started working in agriculture in my late teens and uh, – I'm just someone who likes big things. I like big ideas and big country and big animals. And so I started out working on small farms and gardens. But um, as I started to learn more about grassland ecology and the history of North American grasslands and the degree to which grasslands today are imperiled due to bad management, due to development and so on, I became interested in livestock and pursued opportunities to work with them. And uh, for me, working with livestock and, and currently large herds of cattle on large land bases, it's, it's just the way that I find that I can have the most direct, hopefully positive impact on my environment. And it, it's work that I enjoy doing. Very good. Very good. Now, a big part of this discussion, though, to have you on today is to talk about all the environmental factors, because it's clear there is a strong push to the message that climate change is happening and we need to do what we can. Therefore, it's a math equation. Cows emit methane. Methane is a greenhouse gas, so we must reduce the number of cows. Simple math equation. At least that's part of the message, but it's in reality, it's not quite that simple. So give us sort of your overview of why you think that's that's sort of a, a just a false sim, oversimplification of the, of the issue. Well, first of all, I understand why people can come to that conclusion based on the kind of set of data that you just described. As somebody who's out with the animals, wild and domestic on the land every day, I do see that there's a lot more nuance to that equation. And there's a lot of factors that are completely left out. Um, I guess I would say that I don't personally have any vested interest in how much beef people eat. I think that there's a lot of different considerations that should inform that. But livestock can play a really important role in landscapes and particularly in, in maintaining and enhancing the health of landscapes that have been degraded, sometimes by livestock, to be fair. Um, oftentimes, livestock, cattle and sheep in particular, are pitted against their wild and native analogs. And again, I understand why that's the case, because for a long time, that has been, to some degree, the real nature of that relationship. It has been zero sum. Uh, the legacy of ranching in North America, at least, has been uh, fairly, it can be fairly described as a, a settler colonial um, endeavor, intentionally or otherwise, I think very unintentionally for many of the people involved historically. But today... And looking yeah. forward, that doesn't necessarily mean that every 
cattle ranch is just in the way of some large scale bison rewilding project. There's a lot of other things going on there that don't get that aren't easily apprehended if someone is just trying to find out what to eat by reading um, nutritional research publications. Um, if we allow that wild ruminants and undulates have a positive and just sort of inherent relationship to play with the landscapes that they evolved in, it would follow that domestic ruminants also can have a similar role to play. That doesn't mean they behave the same. That doesn't mean that we can just turn them out and expect them to behave the way that bison do. Similarly, we can't just turn bison out and expect them to be, you know, magical forces of good without any uh, provisions made for them to, to behave in a way that enhances or sustains the land. There's a lot of complexity there. Um, and I just hope that people can have an appetite for that complexity. I think people are fairly uh, nuance fatigued these days because we've been trying to understand a lot of yeah. big questions with uh, conflicting information for the last few years. Um, well, really for, for the last hundreds of years, right? Uh, but we have information overload. <laughs> what I, I guess say is that the nuance and complexity is where the fun begins. And uh, I appreciate you having me on as someone who's sort of steeped in that every day because there's a lot that just really gets missed. I think that's a great point. I mean, the people who are really deep into this discussion understand the nuance and discuss the nuance, but sort of the, the general population maybe doesn't want to hear the nuance. They just want to hear the answer. And that's where the, the simple math equation makes a lot of sense, which is kind of unfortunate. But you, so you mentioned the, the topic of rewilding and there's some debate about like you said, all this land that is being taken up by methane emitters would be much better off if we just got rid of the methane emitters and, and re rewild it, just let the natural habitat take over and that would be better for the environment. So where do you see the holes in that, in, in that argument? Well, I guess the first hole would just be that any ruminant animal is going to be pretty much by definition a methane emitter. So that includes elk and bison as well. Um, to be clear, uh, I think one of the unfortunate sort of sidelines these conversations often fall, follow is this idea that it's the cattle people versus the bison rewilders. I think that's, that's a, again, sometimes an understandable dichotomy, but also often a, a false dichotomy to pit livestock against all these other species. So I want to be clear that I'm, I'm not uh, anti-bison by any means. I, I think a lot of the large-scale rewilding projects are very exciting, although I am concerned that some of them are not really addressing all the stakeholders involved fairly. And I think we need to be mindful of the tendency for there to be uh, environmental colonialism, just as there is settler colonialism. Uh, that digression aside, um, grassland environments co-evolved with ruminants. They also often co-evolve with fire and many co-evolve with people. That's a really important part of this that often gets ignored where a lot of the times people who think about rewilding have this sort of um, John Muir-esque view, you know, encountering beautiful landscapes that were fairly recently vacated by Native Americans who had been up until that time supporting and, and sometimes with a fairly heavy hand influencing those landscapes. So there's a long legacy, not just of ruminants in wild landscapes, wild grassy landscapes in particular, but also ruminants influenced by the behavior of people. 
and we're talking many tens of thousands of years. Mm-hmm. This isn't a new innovation by any means. So we need to remember our roots a little bit. I think a lot of people misunderstand the function of, for example, cattle on a landscape. And so then if people say they can be sufficient proxies for wild ruminants in situations where we can't put together, say, 300,000 acres to turn out bison in a free-ranging herd, um, cattle can often be a really good substitute if our goal is improving the health of the range. So, for example, one thing that livestock do, wild livestock and wild animals can do, it's not just about what they graze, but it's also about the um, mechanical action that they have, the, the very sort of physical interactions that they have on the landscape. So um, we often think about cattle as just removing grass and pooping it out, and that's the life cycle, right? But in fact, just the presence of them, especially mm-hmm. at meaningful density um, influences how plants grow. It can stimulate um, them to shed some of their roots, grow new shoots. They can uh, have what we call animal impact, in which case they're they're uh, disturbing the plants, sometimes without even removing any plant material and uh, sort of transforming old decadent dead grass into residual or litter that can then be incorporated into the soil. It can cover the soil. It can help the the soil to absorb more water in instances of rainfall, which is really important now that our rainfall patterns seem to be more erratic, more severe, um, and fewer and far between in some cases. Um, It's it's something I've observed on our lease in New Mexico, where there's a herd of over a thousand elk that kind of come and go, is that the elk often follow our cattle rotation because they are excited about the new grass that grows behind the cattle. Um, on the flip side of that, one cool thing about domestic livestock is because we can control their grazing habits through herding, through fencing, um, through just understanding their behavior and their metabolic needs, we can uh, stimulate new grass to grow. We can allow for an appropriate rest and recovery period. And then we can allow the cattle to not be in certain places so that grass can grow. The the kind of funny thing about an ironic thing about elk is that, uh, you know, that lease down there is about 125,000 acres, but it's surrounded by a lot of smaller places with lots of fencing. So on that place, they can go pretty far without being um, bottled up in old barbed wire fence. And we put in a lot of two or three strand high tensile fence, about eight miles of it, just to be able to control our cattle without infringing on the elk too much. But the elk will come in and eat grasses that's trying to recover. And so some of those pastures that have barely been grazed by cattle or not grazed at all are still struggling to recover because of the impact of wild ruminants. Again, I don't say that because I think wild mm-hmm. ruminants are bad or I remotely want to replace them with domestic animals. Far from it. Rather, I'm trying to outline the fact that given that we have uh, our current reality of often smaller um discontiguous landscapes. We have interstates, we have uh, old, you know, legacy barbed wire fencing. If our goal is to restore the health of landscapes and especially to restore the health of range, the water holding capacity and the biodiversity, I think that we should be um, respectful of the tools that we have and respectful of the people who've been working with those tools for a while. And that's often going to be ranchers. Livestock are more than tools, they're sentient beings, but 
from the perspective of attending to the goals of restoring the health and the biodiversity on these landscapes that have been losing them for the past sometimes several hundred years, livestock can be a really important Mm -hmm. tool concurrent with the goals of restoring uh, wildlife and restoring range health. The porosity between ranching and rewilding is actually pretty significant. And that's what often gets ignored, I think. That's a good point. That's a good point. And, and the other thing you've mentioned in the past is sort of the misunderstanding between environmentalists and ranchers. And and when I read you, your comment about that, at first I thought, yeah, the environmentalists totally misunderstand the ranchers. But what you said was it's actually more the ranchers sort of misunderstanding some of the environmentalists. So I'm curious kind of what, what you meant by that and some of the specifics. Sure. Yeah. I appreciate you bringing that up because I, I think there's a lot of unnecessary um, angst between the two groups because of those misunderstandings. I think sometimes ranchers like myself, who are very passionate about the health of the range and improving the health of the range, believe that a lot of environmentalists want to replace their pastures that they may, might see as very healthy, abundant places with lots of wildlife with Um, soybean fields or something like that. And that's just generally not the case. In some cases, that is what some people think is best, um, especially in areas that have the highest uh, production potential, um, which does create some tricky situations because a lot of the places that grow the best annual crops also grow the best and most abundant and most endangered prairie. So we should be honest about that. However, I think the real concern for a lot of environmentalists is that if we can get cattle and livestock out of the way, we shouldn't be replacing them with corn and wheat and soy, but rather just with rewilded landscapes. So that's the real tension, but I think it's often misunderstood. Similarly, I think a lot of ranchers, you know, when we go into town to visit the city and and do some errands there, we we have this notion that um, we live in this refuge and this sort of bastion of ecological health, um, sort of a sanctuary, and that we contrast that in our minds to all these people who live in cities, which again is kind of a misunderstanding because I think it's fair to say that in terms of energy use, a lot of people living together in a city actually can be more efficient than a lot of people living in rural areas. There's a lot of other reasons for people to live in rural areas. Um, There's a lot more to the equation, as you've indicated about beef, um, than just energy in, energy out. But sometimes the way that we frame that kind yeah. of uh, dichotomy is is in sort of false terms, I would say. So that's a couple of things that that come to mind. Um, there's a lot of a lot of yeah. things that go the other way too, but um, I, I think those are a little more readily apparent. And one thing that always strikes me is how many people, you know, fighting for the environment have ever been on a, a pasture, have ever been on an open range and seen the transformation that can happen when someone is really taking care of the land and focusing not just on raising beef, but on, on taking care of the land. And, and you made a quote, um, something similar. So uh, you want the environmentalists to put their money where their mouth is and pay you to graze the land right without meat as the chief goal. And I was curious about that because right now it's, it's the beef that pays for you to be able to manage the land. But do you envision a day where it's just more about the land itself and without having to worry about uh, turning out beef as a commodity? I think I was feeling a little bit 
sassy and pugnacious whenever I wrote that. I'm not sure I put it quite those terms now, but um, <laughs> I do. I'm not sure I envision a day okay. quite like that, but I I do envision um, the sort of imminent necessity of us having to re-internalize a lot of the costs that industry has external have has externalized over the past 150 200 years. So, um, you know, it may be true that for some landscapes to produce, say, beef with very few inputs, with very few supplement, very little outside um, uh, outside resources, that those landscapes will produce less beef, and more maybe more wild game. I don't know. I can see it going a lot of different ways. At this point, what I encourage people to do when they're trying to source their meat is to do their best to understand how that meat is interacting with its environment and try to buy from that. Mm -hmm. I understand that that can be time prohibitive, cost prohibitive, um, but I think that for those who have the means, that's one of the best ways to go about it. And I think it's, it's the responsibility of people who have the means to do some of the kind of investment in land and people that a lot of people who don't have the means don't have the option to do. Um, I think, uh, I think it's worth pointing out here that a lot of the ways that, um, you know, that ranchers, environmentalists, to speak in broad terms, often misunderstand each other, kind of speaking the other direction of where ranchers are misunderstood is that I don't think ranchers think of themselves as raising, um, a product that should be viewed strictly in caloric terms. Whereas when I see a lot of nutritional experts online or in publications talking about beef, they often put them in the, the bucket of, of calories in, calories out. But that's not really what beef is for. Beef is about protein. It's about um, micronutrients, vitamins and minerals, um, some fat. Mm -hmm. It's not, it shouldn't be in my mind compared to to wheat or soy or um, oats or millet or any any anything like that. It's it's just different. Um, and I think the other thing is that um, a lot of people think that ranchers are interested in like that that we're absorbed with raising the product that we're obsessed with death, if you will. That it's all about the end product. And I can't speak for all ranchers because ranchers come from many different walks in life, actually, increasingly so. And, and people are diverse and we have different motivations. But for us, it's it's really about life. It's about raising and maintaining life. And um, a lot yeah. of ranchers haven't been incentivized, especially in the commodity system, to uh, value and invest in some of the aspects of their, their range and their um, base of production that the public really needs them to. Things like... Uh, improving grazing, things like sustaining and protecting and enhancing wetlands, which are bastions of biodiversity and are really critical. Those aren't necessarily issues inherent with ranching. I think that they're issues inherent with the incentives around ranching. Um, and we could certainly discuss a lot of the problems that come with private property. Yeah, so that's the big question. How do we incentivize that more? Like the work you're doing you know, you're one person or, you know, a two person team with some dogs and like, how much can you, can you impact the land? So how do we scale what you do in this concept of 
provide, you know, taking care of the land, the land first and using the cattle to help with the land and the biodiversity and improving the environmental impact. How do we scale that? Well, I think to an extent, it's already scaling fast. Um, Organizations that have been teaching better range management for the past 10 to 30 years have pretty impressive statistics about the land impacted and the real changes that have been seen on those, on those ranches or on those public land leases, on those tribal lands, et cetera. It's becoming evident that status quo ranching of turning animals out, checking them a few times, moving salt and mineral around and, and maybe moving them one to three times a year is, it's not going to cut it. And interestingly, a lot of the bad management that has, that, that, ranching has sort of skirted by on has been because of the management that indigenous land stewards did for so long. You know, we were kind of um, getting by on the the surplus, if you will. That's not the case anymore, and especially in New Mexico, where, you know, Spanish people started grazing sheep and cattle up to 400 years ago. And so the range, some parts of that range are really degraded. We have to be really progressive and really careful with um, investing in the land because there's nothing left to harvest if you don't invest back into it first. Mm. So I think it's becoming necessary just to be able to um, have a sustained, uh, sustainable operation. For some people, that's going to be something that they hand off to their kids. They're, They're thinking about how can this last? How can this be productive long-term? They're thinking about how can I keep my wells from going dry? And that depends a lot on how the land above it is managed to some extent. That being said, I think you're right. I think that there are limitations to doing what is best for the land and for sort of general public that we shouldn't necessarily expect people to do sort of out of the kindness of their heart or out of some sort of ecological martyrdom when those people or those producers have to also make a living. So um, I think that's where things like government funds come in. That's where things like creative land ownership models come in. There's, there's a group called agrarian commons that I think is pretty promising. That's where things like, um, you know, working and collaborating with tribal landowners comes in. And we've had some really positive experiences doing some of that. That's where um, potentially biodiversity markets come in, as much as that can make some people uncomfortable. We need to find mm-hmm. ways to pay people who are in positions of stewardship and who know their land really well to make decisions that are more for the long-term health and restoration of landscapes for for the ecosystem services that everybody depends on. Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about sort of government involvement and incentives and uh, you know, a lot of that is going to require getting past this, um, this you know, energy in, energy out, methane in, methane out type of discussion and into these details and nuances, which is why it's so important that you're out there talking about what you do, not just doing it, but making it public. Um, so a, a quick transition to a slightly different topic, but still really important. You know, when we talk about climate change and, and cattle and beef, there's always a big discussion about the deforestation happening um, overseas, right? Not here in the U.S. so much, but, but mo- mainly overseas. And the question is, does that relate to anything you're doing? I mean, it's clear the deforestation has to stop um, for climate change and the amount of CO2 released and 
cutting down so many trees is it is terrible for the environment. But when we talk about beef, we sort of lump everything together. So beef equals deforestation, therefore we need to eat less beef. Mm -hmm. But what you're doing in my mind is so completely unrelated and in fact maybe undoing some of those damages but some people in the environmental movement want to connect them. They say beef is beef. It doesn't matter how it's raised. Any increased interest in beef fuels deforestation. How do you think about those with any connection? Yeah, that's a really good question. Definitely something that's been on my mind a lot. Um, I'd say the short answer is I'm not totally sure because the more I think about it, the more that gets into um, sort of a question of behavioral economics. So to my mind, uh, rather than tell people to eat less beef, have them then buy less beef, but buy beef from unknown sources that might actually be um, destructive to the environment as some kind of guilty pleasure. You know, I would say direct people to buy beef from people who are managing it well and trying to sustain the range. To me, that seems very clean and logical. However, I'm beginning to understand the concerns about people from people who say, while beef isn't beef isn't beef, um, in the sense that at least in, in, in this country, in the United States, people can have a pretty high degree of choice about where they buy their meat. Um, there, I think that the attitude of people who lump all that together as a global commodity is that the market signal of buying local grass-fed beef will be felt by Brazilian cattle exporters who are cutting down rainforest. And that even though we are, yes, supporting, say, local producers with some progressive um, grass-fed uh, ranch, that nonetheless, we are also signaling to the global commodity market to just produce more beef, period. To me, that seems like a stretch. I can see that being true some of the, some of the time, and in some cases, I don't see that being true as a rule. And, um, and so I'm not really sure. I, it's a question that it, it seems kind of taken for granted on both sides. People from my perspective just assume are right. And people who think that buying beef, just beef begets more beef, irregardless of, of what kind you bought, um, seem to take for granted that they're right. And to me, that's actually, it's an idea that can be examined in literature, looking at other commodities that have uh, also have more local or maybe nature boutique sources. Um, and that's a, a discussion I would love to see explored with more detail by people who know more than I and have more um, access to publication, you know, beyond publication paywalls than I do. Um, but I will say that. Yeah. Yeah. I, so that's an example of, of something that I think where I think the academic literature can really help us. What I often see happen in these kinds of conversations is that people who are looking at this strictly from, say, a carbon or an energy um, or a nutritional perspective have, I would say, kind of have their blinders on and try to engage the topic strictly from the literature. And those of us who are on the land and can see sort of these lateral dimensions of aspects that are not included in those studies and therefore don't make it in the literature, we kind of try to chime in on those discussions and are sort of dismissed as being inherently biased or as, as not having much value to offer. And, uh, and I'm not sure quite why that is. I would think that if someone was interested in a topic, they would be interested in hearing from the people who are uh, very physically and financially involved with that topic without just writing us off as being yeah. chills or being um, 
being biased uh, because I think mm-hmm. most people involved in ranching don't necessarily want the status quo to remain. We see the problems inherent to it and we are to some degree uh, really well qualified to identify solutions for those problems and boundaries to progress, barriers to progress. And I, I think we have a lot to offer. Um, and there's a lot of dimensions to land management, to grazing, to cattle, to ranching, et cetera, that, that don't readily lend themselves to research trials that aren't falsifiable, that could never be published, but nonetheless are real and should be considered, which again, you have me so I appreciate that for that reason. Well, I, I think that's a, a great point, many great points, and a great discussion about sort of the nuances. And you let off how, how so many people are, are sort of nuanced fatigued, but I think we need to bring that back because it's not such a, a simple discussion. So so to wrap it up, though, I'd love to hear your your dream, like five, 10 years from now. What do you, what do you hope things look like that's different where you can say, my work, my advocacy, my message helped make that happen? Um, what, what do you see, what do you hope to see different? That's a good question. One, I haven't really given myself permission to think about too much. So thanks for the, the, the good prompt. <laughs> um, a few sort of disconnected visions or hopes um, in my sort of fanciful rangeland futurism uh, dreams. One would just be that a lot of our, um, a lot of how ranching is done in terms of private property ownership is re-envisioned in ways that are workable for, for all involved in that we can develop models of commons, land access, et cetera, that are um, more conducive both to healthy livelihoods and economies in rural areas and also to restoring to the land some of the aspects of, of healthy environments that have been um, sidelined or removed through bad land management. And so, again, that's why organizations like Agrarian Trust and, and maybe some others like them are really encouraging to me. I think we're just sort of at the beginning stages of seeing what's possible there. Um, I would love to see more people get involved in ranching coming from an environmental lens. M- many of my peers and friends and collaborators are such people. Um, and uh, they just make really good land managers because uh, rather than working in nonprofits or working in, you know, academic institutions, they have a lot of the knowledge and the sort of broad sphere of, of questions and understanding about the environmental circumstances they're in. And while trying to reconcile that with producing an economic unit is some of the hardest work, hardest work around, I think it's some of the most necessary work. And so we need people who are struggling with that relationship to be in that relationship. Um, and I'm seeing a, a positive trend there too. And there's lots of good training programs there now out there to help people break into this kind of work. And, and I've been fortunate for the opportunities I've had. Um, I would like to see, uh, I'd like to see ranchers and land managers viewed as collaborators towards environmental goals rather than as antagonists or sort of pebbles in the shoes of people who are interested in large-scale land restoration projects. And um, I cut my teeth managing cattle in uh, an explicitly research and educational um, preserve. And so it's been 
it's been funny ever since to see what is often a false dichotomy between environmentalists and ranchers. At the same time, a lot of ranchers perpetuate that dichotomy. So I'll, I'll own that. We can be pretty poorly behaved at times. Um, so I could go on, but those are a few examples of some of the changes that I would like to see. Um, and, uh, and I think finally just, uh, looking hard at the incentives for bad management and trying to instead replace those with incentives for good land, land management, even on some of the most seemingly stereotypical large scale commodity beef ranches with generational ownership and BLM leases, you know, that's, to me, we, we can't wait on everybody having a, um, you know, a spark of higher consciousness to make changes. Sometimes we just have to change the circumstances that they're making rational behavior, rational choices within. So change needs to happen at multiple levels. And I think it is happening, but I, I think, um, we need people to be collaborative and to have good, honest, uh, conversations to be able to accelerate that change. That wraps up this episode of the Diet Doctor podcast. And you can see there, there's uh, a lot more to the equation than just cattle emit methane, therefore get rid of cattle, get rid of beef, and the world will be a better place. There's so much more involved in that. There's the nutrient density of meat. There's the high quality protein at low calorie levels for, for beef. Uh, there's the positive environmental impact that can happen. But the question is where we are now, is that enough to say it's okay, keep going the way we're doing? No, it's clear things need to change to continue to improve both land management, environmental impact, and uh, quality of, of cattle's lives and, and the, uh, the quality of the beef and the uh, amount and the yields and so forth, given the inputs that are needed. So it's clear we need to continue the discussion. And I think that's the most important part to get past this cattle are bad, beef is bad, emits methane, get rid of it, but rather talk about it in context because the other assumption we need to get past is that beef serves no role in a healthy diet. And that is absolutely false based on very poor quality evidence. Um, and misses a c entire part of the benefits of it. And so that's the other part of the discussion. So that's what I hope to continue to bring up and discuss in multiple different ways from multiple different perspectives with a lot of different people so that we can all understand the nuance and, and the complexity that's needed to help further this, this discussion. Now, that doesn't mean cattle have zero impact on the environment, right? They clearly do, both positive and negative. So it's how do we optimize the positive impact by minimizing the negative impact and putting it in perspective of what else we can do um, to, to uh, try and stem climate change, right? It's just not all about beef. There are so many other industries and so many other ways that we could probably have an even bigger impact on climate change. So we need to focus on cattle as they, as they relate to the entire picture of climate change. So anyway, this was one more episode to look at that, and I'm sure we'll have more in the future. Thanks for joining us on the Diet Doctor podcast. Thank you.